Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. In this episode, you will hear part one of my conversation with Laura DeSisto, Program Director and Senior Lecturer for the Master of Liberal Arts Program at Johns Hopkins University. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. My guest today is Laura DeSisto, Program Director and Senior Lecturer for the Master of Liberal Arts Program at Johns Hopkins University. Hi, Laura. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Good, good. good. Welcome, and it's great, it's great to see you here. Um, I've wanted to talk to you forever. Uh, <laughs> I think that, um, uh, well, first of all, uh, I've been just so impressed by your work with your students in this last year and a half or so that I think we started working together. It's just fabulous and it's yeah. amazing to see. Um, but uh, that's why I, I want to invite you here to share some of, you know, some of what I get to see. You know, I feel so privileged. <laughs> um, but before I do that, um, we go and dive into that. I I would love to talk more about you and sort of um, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know how you came to be and and you are the you are you are program director for the Masters of Liberal Arts program um, at Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you know give us a little background on yourself and also maybe a little intro to folks who may not be even aware that people get master's degree in liberal arts because i think a lot of people know that there is a liberal arts component in a lot of four-year undergrad you know sort of college degrees what is what what is what is you know we'd like to dig into that in a little while too um so uh, but why don't you tell us about yourself sure yes and first of all thank you so much jeff for inviting me to have this conversation I've really enjoyed the many conversations we've had over the last year and a half, and it's just been such a wonderful experience to explore what Digication can do and how it opens up new opportunities for my faculty and for my students. So really, I'm grateful to have this opportunity to talk with you. So uh, in terms of providing that background, I'll touch on both. Maybe what I'll do first, though, is start with talking about the MLA program as the point of entry, and then I'll I'll share a little bit about how and why I came to be in the position with regard to the MLA program. So the Master of Liberal Arts at Johns Hopkins is actually the first graduate program of its kind in the United States. So you're right to be asking this question because we're the first ones who created a, a master's level degree primarily or with the focus of being just the liberal arts in a very broad term rather than a specified discipline. Uh, And it's sick. We just celebrated our 60th anniversary. So we've been around for a while now. Uh, Of course, we have now a number of other programs across the country at other wonderful universities, and they go by different names, Master of Liberal Arts, Master of Arts and Liberal Studies, and other variations thereof. But Uh, Across the board, these master's level programs are intended to provide students with opportunities to take a deeper dive into the liberal arts um, at a level that goes beyond what's more typical at that undergraduate four year, either in terms of the general education or core curriculum 
or in terms of the more highly specified discipline-specific major that students complete in undergrad. Uh, with regard to the MLA program at Johns Hopkins, what makes us unique, and this has been with us the whole time since we uh, were first established, is that we are really a program that is interdisciplinary by design. So we are not, there, there are other models that are out there. So that's the disclaimer. The choice that we've made with the Johns Hopkins Master of Liberal Arts program is that our courses are topic or question driven. And then our faculty and students engage with, study, examine, explore that topic or question, drawing from multiple disciplinary perspectives, even if each faculty member might have a particular area of specialization that they bring to the conversation, they're still expected to also go on that journey and bring in other disciplinary voices and ideas and responses to that question or topic. So uh, our students, it's it's a non-specialized master's degree in that respect, um, but we do have some common threads that exist across our programs. So regardless of which specific topic or course our students are studying, we do want them to be grounded in the history of ideas. We want them to understand the, the scholarly discourse that has occurred up until this point in time. We want them to understand history and context and social movements and all of those different factors that have contributed to our understanding of ourselves and the world around us. So we make sure that that happens. As I already mentioned, we are very much interested in questions, whether you call them essential questions or eternal questions or unanswerable questions. We're, we're, we're interested in providing our students with openings and opportunities to explore those questions in depth and to work their way into finding some way of engaging with them thoughtfully and meaningfully. We also want our students to be able to understand that each discipline has its own complexity in terms of how it responds to different topics or ideas or issues or challenges, and to be able to work within the complexity of each discipline and then also be able to work across the different disciplines and put those different methods of inquiry and dialogue with one another. So that's what's happening in our program. I hope that doesn't sound too abstract. Uh, happy to elaborate further, but uh, that's the approach that we take with the MLA. Yeah, actually, I'd love to get a little deeper into, you know, maybe what's an example of one of these big questions, you know, big topic that that might start that conversation. And then what would a, you know, an example student will do? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a, that's students a, will do. Yeah. yeah, that's a really great question. So, um, and I should also add that we have the model of our program is very flexible. Our students do 10 courses. They take one core, eight electives, and one capstone. And that'll come up later in our conversation as we're talking about education. But with our core, they actually choose from five different core options. And then they can take additional cores as electives as they go through. And Part of what we've played with with some of our core course titles is putting them in the form of a question. So I'll give you those two examples to answer your question. But of course, there are many, many more that I could do. So one example is uh, our core course called What is History? And the other example is our core course that is called Why Read the Classics? So for What is History? 
it's the point of it is to help students actually learn about historiography, which is something that you usually don't encounter, certainly in your high school education. And depending on how far you go with studying history in undergraduate, you may or may not have many opportunities to do. But what it essentially does is it helps students understand that history is a field that is constantly in the process of being made. And so our, our understanding of a particular topic changes and shifts as the scholarship in response to that particular topic changes and shifts. So what our students then do in that course is they pick a particular topic that's of interest to them. And they don't just study the topic from a direct standpoint of what are the facts, what happened, and who, who was impacted. Instead, what they're doing is they're looking at what has the scholarship said about what happened? How has it changed? Who was doing that study? What voices were heard? Which voices and perspectives were excluded? What other threads or other interpretations or other directions have people gone in in responding or navigating or investigating that particular topic? And how does the understanding of those, I don't want to say evolving, right? Because it doesn't always mean a neat and tidy progression, right? Sometimes they're very distinct and competing ideas of or interpretations of what happened um, when looking at that particular topic. It allows students to then get at the deeper questions about who we are, what can we know, what does it mean to make claims, right? Uh, a lot of students think of facts in very objective terms uh, as if they're established and unquestioned and those sorts of things. So as you start with that very broad question of what is history, you actually end up starting to ask these other questions that get to some of those more eternal, potentially unanswerable, but always really interesting and rewarding to look at questions about who we are and how we understand ourselves. What is the what is the nature of story, right? What is the role that story plays in our understanding of ourselves and who shapes those narratives? And then when certain accounts of events become accepted, what are the consequences of that? And how does that affect and impact uh, things that happen later on down the line, whether directly or indirectly. So so that's one example. Is that helpful? Yeah, it's it's amazing. To me, it, it almost feels like, um, you know, sort of thinking about, um, you know, like the difference between looking at, you know, sort of, you know, the first time you see you, you had algebra class and then you're like, well, hold on a minute. There's also, um, you know, you know, there there is also calculus that completely just you know like looks at it in a completely different way and is ever going to be changing. Exactly, we're going to look at it at a microscopic level. You know, yeah. Um, and when you look at it like that, it's no longer just a straight line on on the curve. It's actually you know it's uh, the straight line that just happens to be a straight line if you see it that way. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it's extremely, extremely sophisticated, and I I kind of wonder, you know, for me, I mean, this is. You must sort of swim in an intellectual pool of, um, you know, it's it's like intellectual pool of heaven. People, you know, thinking and challenging these big ideas all day. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things 
that I am reminded of every single day in working in this program, uh, both in terms of the faculty who are drawn to teaching in this program, because it does mean you have to be comfortable putting yourself outside of your own comfort zone, right? You can't, uh, the nature of doctoral studies, primary, especially in the U.S., is, but also around the world, is highly specialized, right? So all of us who have our doctoral degrees are coming from a very highly specialized background in terms of our research and the work that we do. And our courses not only say to our students, but also say to the faculty, you can't stay within that comfort zone. You can't stay within those boundaries. You have to be open to thinking about other angles, other approaches, other disciplinary lenses that can add additional dimensions to the conversation or, or open up whole other areas of critique even. And so our faculty definitely have that disposition. And then our students are the ones who set the example time and time and time again. We have such an incredible, diverse, inquisitive, highly motivated group of students who, who dive into the opportunities in this program and just never cease to amaze me with the directions that they take uh, the conversations and the class discussions and those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, I mean, in, in some ways, you know, you were talking about these, you know, folks having, you know, these essential questions and having discussions and debates and, um, it sounds, would you, would you call it sort of Socratic in the way that it's, um, it's structured? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think to an extent. So the critique that some people have of the Socratic method, and I, and I don't think it's actually grounded in the Socratic dialogues, at least my interpretation of the Socratic dialogues. Um, but many people see that the Socratic method, when it's used in a higher education environment, is almost a performative act, right? To, to that the actually something that I think Socrates, at least as we know him through the dialogues, would probably critique, which is asking provocative questions just for the sake of asking them and and I don't think that's actually what he was doing and I, and I or at least the way it's portrayed in the dialogues and and I would say that the more generous interpretation of right. you know the Socratic dialogue or the Socratic method in teaching is definitely something that we're doing right where just the concept we, of keep asking questions yeah and mm. not just keep asking but ask the follow-up because what I see mm. Socrates doing in those dialogues is he's asking the follow-up questions to take it beyond the surface level to go deeper mm. to say okay if you answer this question in this way doesn't that bring up all these other questions? And how can we fully understand our answer to this first question if we don't also then take the time to think through what it means to answer that question that way or how we go about answering these secondary and tertiary and so on and so forth, these other questions that follow. And so that genuine, going back to some of the other things that we've talked about in the past, that genuine approach, that authentic approach to question asking for the purpose of the shared project of trying to make meaning and understand things better, absolutely yes. <laughs> Happily, fully embrace that that is something that we're trying to do uh, in our courses uh, throughout this program. Yeah. Well, I, I ask also because, you know, it's, it has become a bit of a buzzword for especially a lot of uh, K-12, you know, um, sort of schools. Yeah. People talk about it. Um, sometimes I sort of wonder, you know, that 
you have a 60-year-old model <laughs> that has been working tremendously well. Um, and you, you are, you know, it's, you're understanding it. You, you're also multiplying your, your, your knowledge year over year as well. So it's, it, I almost feel like that in this MLA program, you've, you've got an accumulation of an explosion of like amazing amount of knowledge and experiences, but it, it's not about content. It's about the constructs and the process of how to learn and how to, how to be um, a better human, how to be someone who understands the world, you know, um, in a in a in a in a more meaningful way, right? Yeah, these are things that we, at least I feel like I know that you have a you have young child and yeah. I have children. Um, that we want, we I I would want I would want my five and six year olds to to be able to experience this even though they are far from being able to do the level of work that you do with your mm -hmm. graduate students at Johns Hopkins mm -hmm. right um but I feel like that there's got to be some some ways of um making making some connections there because I don't believe I mean I believe that by the level of rigor um, yeah, I mean, they probably won't have the level of maturity and knowledge and sophistication to maybe have the same kind of conversations, mm -hmm. but it shouldn't be taken away the opportunity to to learn in that way. Absolutely. Uh, so <laughs> I have so many things I want to say in response to that. So um, and I guess this will get back to one of your earlier questions about my background. And so I yeah. should explain that my PhD is in philosophy and education. So it was an inter, even though I said we're highly specialized, in my case, it was an interdisciplinary, highly specialized doctoral degree. And so um, I have been for a very, very long time over 20 years, uh, interested in these intersections between philosophy and the work of education and not ex exclusively higher education, right? Education. And, and, and in fact, a good portion of my career prior to joining Johns Hopkins was in teacher education. So work and those, I have a very special place in my heart for working with um, future educators and then also long serving teachers uh, who uh, go on to do additional work in, um, and I can talk about that later too, but in the liberal arts in particular. And so emphatically, my answer is yes, there is a place for these kinds of conversations at every single level of education. I also, as you mentioned, happen to have a four-year-old and an eight-year-old. At this point in time, dispositionally, my four-year-old is much more open to the kinds of philosophical conversations I try to have. <laughs> My eight-year-old, it'll be more of a journey to get her there, but uh, she she enjoys many other things, but sometimes she'll just roll her eyes at me, but maybe that comes with the territory of having an eight-year-old. Uh, but um, there are, so I should say, uh, been thinking of my colleagues, there are some amazing people who are trying to do this kind of work in the pre-K through 12 environment. And there are some amazing scholars who've done this work, especially throughout the 20th century. Really, really good work has been done. It's not necessarily, and this is part of the dance of do you, are you overt in calling it philosoph, you know, the of infiltra infiltration of philosophical ideas and thinking 
and teaching methods in the K-12 environment or are you doing it, you know, in more subtle ways? But um, there is an organization called the Institute for Philosophy for Children, and they work directly with teachers um, in that pre-K through 12 uh, range. Um, and they have wonderful programs and training and those kinds of things. Are, there's excellent research out there. Uh, back when I would teach in uh, teacher education programs in undergraduate and graduate alike, there's this really great book called Little Big Minds by Marietta McCarty. And she takes that more question driven, like she takes a certain topic and she talks about how you can engage with very young children all the way through in that more conversational approach. How do you talk about something like death? How do you talk about something like the concept of time? Because honestly, many children come to philosophical questions quite naturally, right? They're trying to make a meaning and, and understand everything that's all around us. Many of the things that we already have ceased to question or we take for granted. And so um, it, it absolutely is the case that there's a place for this kind of work and that kind of educational environment. There is good work being done, but I always think there could be more. What I'm thrilled to see is that a program like the MLA is such a good fit. We do have a good number and a, a nice strong history of educators who come and pursue the MLA program as a part of their ongoing growth and professional development and that sort of thing. And I just think it, it, it suits them very, very well to, to have these opportunities, even if the specific topics they study in our classes you know, it might not be the same readings that they bring to their students in their classrooms, but they time and time again tell me, oh, I'm taking elements of the different things that I've encountered in the MLA program and directly bringing it into my classroom and sharing it with my students. And they are eating it up. They are devouring it. They're absolutely connecting with the types of things that my students are bringing with them from this program, which I think goes back to, you know, those other things that we've been talking about, which is that when you are trying to understand and make meaning of the world around you, it, it no longer seems like a stale or abstract or pointless exercise, right? It's not having somebody jump through hoops just for the sake of doing it. It's saying, no, like, what does it mean to be in this world with other people who have vastly different ways of understanding the concept of what truth is or what objectivity is or that sort of thing? How do we see that playing out? And then you can, you can imagine examples just flow from there. And then you can, and then how do, you, how do people approach those topics or ideas from a literary perspective? What does that look like in a historical perspective? And so on and so forth. And students of all ages are able, again, you scale it and you would make adjustments for the different age levels, but um, they're able to connect because those connections already are present, right? It's, it's not forced. It's not something that's um, shoehorned in to, to the work of yeah. learning. Well, those are some of the things that I, I I feel like you know that worries me so much these days um, is in the you know extremism and the tribalism of you know how our world is is being organized, especially with the 
with the popularizations of all of the social media, it, which they take advantage of the fact that, oh, hold on a minute, we can take emotion as one of the, our, 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 our tools, ammunition to draw eyeballs. I and know. Unfortunately, it turns into money. It's, it's almost like, oh man, I wish they had found anything else, you know? I know. <laughs> and the, but as a result, I almost feel like that in the last, and I don't, I, I guess, you know, the most recent history always, always seems most, you know, you know, it feels, feels most, most true, but you know, it's, it? but, but definitely it feels very real that, um, we, that our society doesn't have meaningful ways to disagree with each other without trying to kill each other. Right. Um, you know, they, they, the, like you were talking about having critiques and having sure. discourses, you know, mm -hmm. these are fantastic ways to, like I said, it sounds like a pool of intellectual heaven, but in the, it, the way that, you know, it's being translated in our world today, it's not right. It's turning into the opposite direction, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things, so the MLA program, obviously being 60 years old, um, the majority of its history has been traditional on-campus classes, uh, at, primarily at the Johns Hopkins Baltimore Homewood campus. But in more recent years, so I'm about to enter into my sixth year here at Johns Hopkins, and I would say it was approximately three or four years before I jo joined, the program had started moving over into also providing online offerings. And at this point in time, uh, due to a variety of different factors, we're primarily fully online at this point in time. And in fact, we're asynchronous online, which means for people who don't know is that there's no specific day and time in which all of the students are logging in together, whether it's um, through a, a video conference or, or something right. else where they're all engaging simultaneously with one another. An asynchronous online class uh, has a very different approach. And, and for us, our students still work within a weekly schedule. They still have shared assignments. They still do projects. They still have all the range of different kinds of, of things that a, a student normally does in any class. But the conversations happen across the duration of a week. And the reason why I'm bringing this up in response to what you're saying is that, so first of all, as we you know, increasingly became more and more of an online program. There's the knee-jerk reaction of, you know, the the romanticized notion of the in-person classroom environment and so much is lost and so on and so forth. And I'm sympathetic. I understand that, again, the majority of my teaching career, you know, decades long has been in in-person environments. And I do, there is some really special energy and synergy that comes from having a group of people all in the same room together, all dialed in and discussing ideas with one another. But the reality is actually that oftentimes in those environments, the, the strongest, most confident, loudest voices are the ones that are heard the most. And of course, we as educators are trained to find different ways to create those spaces to make sure all the students' voices have an opportunity to be heard and to share and contribute, but some people are processors and like to spend more time crafting their responses and other people think in ways that don't fit within the confines of a time-bound class session. And what I have seen 
and this I think connects back to what you're talking about, is that because of the asynchronous model, because of the fact that our students have time to compose their responses to different questions that we're asking, to then carefully read over their classmates' thoughts, right? Nobody gets to hide. Nobody gets to avoid responding to a question or idea. And then they're required to engage thoughtfully with each other's comments, not in a knee-jerk, quick, fast, you know, these these kind of very abbreviated, um, reactive kind of ways that we often see play out, especially in certain platforms, Um, instead they have, you know, even if they read something that they disagree with strongly and maybe their initial response is to be like, what are you talking about? They have that opportunity to step back, right? It's still within the boundary of a week, but still to think about how might I respond to that other person in my class, acknowledge what I hear them saying, and then push back in ways that are productive, that might help that other person understand their point of view and so on and so forth. So I think that the format, although we're, you know, there are, again, we're, we're still navigating it and it's a good fit for some people more so than others. But what I am seeing is it becomes an exercise in teaching us how to engage with one another in online spaces, which can otherwise seem very impersonal, otherwise seem like these almost combative, reactive spaces in ways that push against all of that, right? To develop those habits of discourse and dialogue in, in, in ways that make it, it's not impersonal, right? They, our students create really amazing lasting relationships with one another, and they could be located on completely different parts of the country, different er- different parts of the globe, different time zones, different stages in their lives, and all of those different sorts of things. Because I think in part, they have to hear what everyone has to say, and they have to be able to respond thoughtfully and constructively to the diversity of viewpoints that they share with one another. That I know that was a roundabout way to get back to your point, but I see it play out time and time again. And I'm hoping that that'll have a ripple effect and improve um, some of those challenges we now have with, like you said, discourse and tribalism and all of those different things that have emerged. I think it's a, it's an amazing observation. I think that the, this idea that just providing time to think and reflect is something that... Um, especially in the Western culture, is not celebrated mm-hmm. very much. I mean, people start to now do a little bit of like, you should meditate and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, stay in the moment and all this kind of stuff. But um, if you look at our calendars or schedules or what goes on to a regular, I mean, your, your, your eight-year-old, I'm guessing that, you know, their lives are, you know, in school is packed. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing to another to another. Mine are, mm-hmm. right? um, and there is an ever, never-ending amount of content that you know that the people are trying to shut down their throats, um, and um, and it comes from every direction, and that this idea of being able to just taking a, you know the time and just kind of be like, you know what, I'm going to compose and feel this for a little bit. I may disagree with it, but let me really feel whether I actually disagree or do I just not feel comfortable. Listen. 
and I have to actually digest it a little bit. And then I realize why I disagree with it. And may not even be for the reason I thought it was going to be. Exactly. Maybe I'm not even mad about it at all. Maybe I'm just like, I just realized I learned something. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And all of this, the ability to, ability to learn to how to disagree with someone and, and, uh, but, but, but to me, there's also this taking away part of the, the current, um, I think you you used the word combative, and I really feel that. I think there's almost like a a sense of the activity that we engage in. I have to win it. it there's there wasn't even a competition, right? You know? <laughs> it wasn't even a competition. You, I have to win it. I have to beat the other person. Well, well, right. But instead, in your situations where they can be like, you have a week. Together, we're going to construct something mm -hmm. that will benefit all of us, right? That's a that they they are all going to win. So it wasn't a it wasn't like I'm going to beat you, right? 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 Yeah, yeah. And you know, and I think I I could not agree with you more. And and again, I see that play out so many times. And I think also one of the benefits of the MLA program in that it isn't highly specialized and there isn't a particular professional goalpost that everyone is the sh they're not all working toward the same uh outcome or benefit of doing the MLA program aside from pers the personal enrichment angle um which then means they're not competing in an environment of scarcity in the way that even other really healthy academic environments Sometimes as you get closer and closer to graduation, people realize, well, we're all, we've all been trained to go into the same field. We're all looking for positions. You know, right. we, we all want the same jobs. Who's getting them? Who isn't? Where are you in your journey? That sort of thing. In a program like mine, which doesn't have that specific professional outcome at the end, means that you're absolutely right. It removes layers of that competitive environment as well they like you said everyone wins and and it's constructed in a way in which there's no there there's nothing else at stake except for doing the work well and approaching it with an open mind and a genuine willingness to learn from one another right and in that kind of context there's plenty of room at the table for everyone to contribute and everyone to get something out of it and there's, you know, and of course, I'm not trying to downplay the fact that our students also have very real pressures and goals and professional visions that they have for themselves that they're working toward. I'm not at all trying to say that that's not a reality of their experience. Of course, that's present. But it's not at the cost of the other members of the program, right? It's not, it's not set within those parameters. And I, I think that that also helps to alleviate some of that feeling among the students, too. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, I, as you were talking about, um, you know, that your students have, um, you know, they go on to do incredible things. They, mm -hmm. they have great aspiration. Um, I, I wanted to actually talk a little bit about this idea of people thinking about, you know, sort of professional specialists versus like a professional generalist. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I I think that there is a uh there there I feel like there's gotta be so much um inaccurate way of us thinking about, you know, like what what it means to get that higher education degree and potentially getting into loans. Your students sure. may be getting some of them may be getting scholarships and whatnot. Absolutely. But the the idea though that they are gonna, you know, go and get a degree in Actually, people attack liberal arts yes. education. I yep. should, <laughs> right? Um, you're 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 spending, you know, your especially in the undergraduate level, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're spending your college years, you know, not learning a sellable skill, a a a a a, a um, something that you can, you know, you can bank on. Um, which I think you and I could categorize categorically say that it's untrue right <laughs> but let's yeah. break this down you know um, yeah but 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 the like how would you how would you react to that yeah um yeah you know i i have a number of different ways in which i respond to that you know of course as you know too there are um a number of organizations out there that do the the in-depth research, you know, like AACNU has a number of those reports available. I think Georgetown did one recently um, that that looks at the actual facts around individuals with liberal arts education. And and the reality is that the economic, the negative economic impact that people claim in the kind of just general discourse actually isn't what you see play out. Um, that's not my world. I'm, that's not the kind of research I do. So I, I can't speak to it in depth, but I've certainly read it and I share it with my students and time and time again, especially in terms of the duration of one's career. What it shows is that individuals with a liberal arts degree have a longevity to their careers, even if the specific work that they're doing might shift or change. But it also shows, if, my, if I'm remembering the research correctly, um, a, a greater propensity for, I guess I should say, uh, stepping into leadership roles, right? And and there are some very real reasons why. And I'm not saying that it's the only pathway. I want to make sure that's very clear. Just like we were talking about before, I'm not interested in it being a match where, you know, it's one versus the other, liberal arts versus a highly professional. You know, there are many different pathways for people to find fulfillment, to find happiness, to find their sense of self. And that's great. Good for them. But for a good number of people who pursue liberal arts degrees, they end up developing certain abilities to analyze, critique, respond to, adapt, innovate, lead, that serves them well in whatever professional pathway or environment they choose. And it also tends to be the case that they have a little bit more flexibility in terms of how they understand their pathway moving forward, right? Because it hasn't already been spelled out for them that if you do this, you're guaranteed a job doing this next thing. And then from there, the stepping stones go in this following way. Because if If you have pursued a liberal arts degree, there is an understanding that you're going to have to figure out how what you have to offer fits within what's available all around us and then make that case for yourself and how you do that and then work your way through. Right. So there's more work that goes into crafting that pathway than the ones where maybe it's 
paved a little bit more smoothly for them. But that does tend to lend them or provide them with some benefits when there are disruptions to the economic environment and there are disruptions to the workforce and and what careers can be. And 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 I'm saying this drawing from my own personal experiences and the networks of people I know, but also from talking with students who are in my program. So I should clarify that our program has anyone from recent college graduates to people who are in their mid 80s. We have students who have um, highly specialized degrees. We have doctors, lawyers, judges, finance individuals, you know, CEOs, MBAs, all of those sorts of things who have gone on and had those careers. And we also have people who are educators, who are social workers, who work with students in admissions offices. And and we have artists and we have creators and and people who, um, you know, engage with the world in in much different ways than the other students and everything in between you you can imagine. And talking with them about why they're drawn to this program and how they see it connecting with their lives and those kinds of things, what they usually tend to say, it's it's a few different things. One is they felt that their world, what in whatever career or pathway that they're on, had become too narrowed, where they were having the same conversations with the same kinds of people, and they weren't, you know, I don't know, to use a metaphor, drawing from a deep enough well, right? They weren't feeling as though like their their life had just become smaller and smaller and smaller and they knew that there was more going on there are more conversations to be had there are more perspectives to hear and to learn from and so they come to a program like this to do that hopefully also then to bring that back into those worlds that they felt were narrow or hopefully to find communities of people who also push back against that kind of narrow worldview and, and also like them share an affinity for the kinds of questions in um, intellectual work that we do. I also hear from students that some of them, because they already are in a space in which people are drawing from a much broader array of ideas and texts and influences and all those sorts of things than what they had in their own education, and they want to pursue this degree to be able to become a part of those conversations, right? Like they didn't see themselves as having the intellectual or cultural capital to fully engage before. And they see this as a way of being able to bring them up to speed so that they can dive in and navigate those spaces with confidence. And, you know, and you can imagine again, that there are different iterations from there. There's no one single model or pathway, but That goes back to this point, though, that it doesn't really matter if you're an engineer or a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer or what have you. There are worthwhile ways of approaching how you think about the world, the the way you go about trying to make meaning of it and understand it and learn from what others have said and done that can be useful to you. And that's why these critiques about the alleged uselessness of a liberal arts education has always been perplexing to me. Because first of all, one of the things a liberal arts education does is explore what it means to be human. And insofar as all of us are human beings, it is deeply and profoundly relevant to us to understand what it means to be human. So the the, the relevance and the use of it is 
inherently apparent to me, but fine. I understand for others, you know, maybe they, I don't know, maybe they want to seek that out through other sources and that's fine. But then going back to these other things about, okay, fine. Even if, and I acknowledge as a philosopher, I'm really interested in concepts of being and, and maybe for some people they're not. So maybe being human isn't as interesting to them, but we still have to interact with one another. We still have to find ways to communicate with one another, to understand one another. If if you're in any kind of professional environment that exists on a global level, I mean, I've had to work overseas as an expat before. I've had to learn what it is to be in cultures that are completely different from my own background and experiences. And I had to learn how to respond authentically and with an open mind and respectfully and learn from these individuals. And I think that draws from the foundation that I had in the liberal arts of recognizing that there are different ways in which we engage with one another. And there are different histories that have been told and different forms of expression and creativity and on and on. This concludes part one of our conversation. To hear part two, be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Digication Scholars Conversations is brought to you by Digication, a technology platform powering the most innovative e-portfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Thanks for tuning in.